This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast collaboration from Innovar City Press and CT Creative Studio. Metal tracks never been a fabricator, but like MOK, I've been an agitator. Hosted by me, Esau McCauley. I think that Jenny is a part of this growing contingent of Asian American leaders who are rising to promising evangelicalism, who are thinking in intentional ways about justice and advocacy from a biblical perspective. And so historically, there's been this stereotype of the Asian American church being kind of detached from these kinds of issues as the model minority. You've seen recently much more cooperation between Asian American communities and African American communities. Sometimes I'll say I'm from Philly and then people have said, no, 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 where are you really from? But someone like you or, you know, a friend or a colleague, if they ask that, I just assume that they're asking me where I'm like, what city and state I'm from. I'm not, I'm not immigration, so I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't run around trying to find people's country of origin as, as a general habit. Or your, your English is really good, as if they're expecting my English to be really poor or for me to flub. Because of that, I almost over-prepare. I won't let everybody know this is a, a pop-the-trunk podcast. <laughs> yes. So we didn't, give, we didn't give Jenny any real preparation. We just told her to pull up. So if, <laughs> if she misspeaks, it's because, it's because of me. No. <laughs> I can't think of a more contentious issue in evangelicalism than immigration. One of the things that's been interesting for me as an African-American is we're not at the center of the race conversation in America. The black-white binary coming out of the South and slavery has been the dominant question for the majority of my life. Even though immigration has obviously historically been a part, but as far as the national conversation, the last 5, 10, 15 years has put immigration at the center of that conversation. And I wanted someone who knew about that, who could think theologically and practically about it, to kind of give us an insight into what it's like to, to do that from within kind of this evangelical world that we inhabit. Growing up in Philly, were you a part of the church growing up, or is this something that came to you later in life? Yeah, so um, I have an interesting family history because my dad immigrated to the United States when he he basically was orphaned during the Korean War in the 1950s. So his dad was in the media, and so his dad was actually killed during the Korean War because they were targeting media personnel. And so my my dad lived with his grand with his mother, my grandmother, and then she became really sick when he was about seven or eight years old, and so she passed away. So then, from a young age, my dad didn't have any siblings, didn't have parents to take care of him, and so he went to live with his uncle, and he. He was really, he would deliver newspapers and he didn't have shoes, like that whole growing up in extreme poverty story. And the one thing he was really good at was fixing cars. And so he actually uh, won the National Car Repair Competition and then was sponsored by Ford Motor Company to work for them. And that was his golden ticket out of poverty. So he immigrated to the U.S. He decided to settle in Philly, which I'm so glad he did, because he had friends in California and in Philly, and he decided to settle on the East Coast. And I'm a total East Coast girl. And um, and he, it was interesting because I mentioned that story because when he was growing up in Korea, there was a church that was planted by American missionaries in his neighborhood, and he would go there all the time just to learn English. And so he became a Christian through that these American missionaries that were there and his mom was a Christian and he would read the Bible. And so him immigrating to the States was an aspect of God's faithfulness in his life. And so he talks about that all the time. So when he settled in Philly, he went to this Korean Presbyterian church that was a church plant, uh, just was maybe 20 or 30 people. And then now it's one of the largest churches in the Philadelphia area. And my parents actually still go there. And so I grew up attending this Korean Presbyterian church and that became such a core part of my identity I think not just as a daughter of immigrants but also as a Christian woman and so it was really formative for me and I think a lot of my dad's storytelling he doesn't talk a lot about his suffering as a little kid but there's times when it comes up when it reminds me of how God was so faithful to him and how he attributes everything he's ever had in his life 
to God's faithfulness to him. And so I always grew up with this tangible sense of, 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 um, of faithfulness through suffering. And it was such a huge part of my family's story. And it really shaped my understanding of who God is. And still to this day, um, we have some of those conversations. And um, I mean, one interesting thing is my parents, my dad's actually retired now. So a few weeks ago, uh, he, they, my parents come down from Philly to Baltimore to help watch my two kids. And my dad will, my one, I have a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. So my one-and-a-half-year-old, his name is Joel. So my dad will not let him cry. So, you know, we put him to bed and he cries. And if he's hungry, he's crying. My dad will pick him up and, like, not put him down. And I said, Dad, just let him be. Like, he's going to fall asleep in the crib. Just let him cry for a little bit. And my dad said to me, he's like, you know, I don't like it when kids cry because I used to cry all the time when I was a little kid. And I was like, oh my gosh. And it completely changed my perspective. And so even though my dad now can hold Joel for like 40 minutes and then put him to bed, I don't, I try not to say anything because for my dad, anytime he hears a kid crying, it it immediately reverts him back to when he used to suffer as an orphan in Korea. And um, it was just an eye-opening, really heart-changing conversation I had with him even just a few weeks ago about that. You might not believe this, but I actually have worked for a Korean Presbyterian church. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're so, everywhere. I mean, I mean, it yes. was really formative for me. And I think, like I was mentioning, my parents still go there. And so I think when you look at even a lot of the growing, more prominent leaders of the evangelical church today, a lot of them are Korean American. Like the new president of the National Association of Evangelicals is Korean American. Is it is university or is it university? Has it? Yeah, well, Tom Lin, uh, he's um, he's Chinese American. Chinese, yes. Yeah, but the the new pr- uh, president of the Gospel Coalition, he's a Korean American. Um, the head of Luzon is a Korean American, and so there's definitely a lot of strong Koreans leadership. In the house. Yes, from Korean Americans in in uh, in in the U.S. So it's it's really exciting to see. So when I was, um, my wife was in medical school at Dartmouth College, and after we got married, I moved up there, and there was a Korean Presbyterian church that was doing an outreach to, they basically started a campus um, ministry that was effectively like a Sunday service. Uh And it started off as being largely Korean, and then it went pan-Asian. And after I after that, they the one of the the person who immediately preceded me, I think he he may have been African. And when when he came, the, it went international. And then I was think at least a third, at least I was the third pastor that I knew about. It may have gone back behind that. Yeah. And when I came, interestingly enough, you got um, people from the Caribbean started to come, and you got interestingly enough a strong the white students started to come because they had an African-American. So it was like maybe 60 to 70% um, Asian-American. And then there was a strong Caribbean flavor. And one of the interesting things about this, it was, it was an interesting, it was an interesting a mashup of cultures because, because it was the Korean, it came out of the Korean tradition. They had the super early morning prayer services. Yes. <laughs> still goes <laughs> on. My mom still go, wakes up at five and goes to pray for us every morning. Yes. yes. So, I'm going to be honest and say I was not sanctified enough and devout in my following of Jesus. That <laughs> I never made it to one of the early services. Yes. But I can say that they they were dutifully held <laughs> as a part of our campus ministry. So w- did you experience, I mean, what was it like then if you grew up in a largely Korean context to go from there to maybe even college where it was pan-Asian and multi-ethnic? Was that something that you eventually experienced? Leaving yeah. the Korean context and going into the wider Christian world? What was that like? Yeah, so my faith journey through being raised in a Korean Presbyterian church and then now where I am spiritually is has been quite a journey and it's I don't know if it's really unique, but I will say that I think being in a Korean Presbyterian church, being the daughter of immigrants and it's it's very much a cultural thing. So even as I knew the foundations of my faith and I came to Christ at a youth retreat and all those things a lot of it is very social. So you go to hang out with your friends, you go to, you know, go to the retreats and all these things. And I think sometimes there's uh, a tendency to to have it be more of a social club than a place where you really find God. And so I think when I, I graduated from high school and I went to college, I had this foundation of faith, but I don't think God was very real to me and that I had a very personal relationship with Christ. And so my parents actually worried about me because they 
they were like, oh, she doesn't read the Bible all the time. <laughs> and uh, she, she's gone on a couple of missions trips, but she doesn't really talk about God in a way that I feel like is very real to her. And so when I went to college, I, I thought to myself, well, I know that this is true, but if this is really true, then I want to do everything I can to discover who God actually really is outside the context of this Korean church culture, which again is is like a social club and and the spiritual elements of it can be diluted in that kind of environment, I think. So I um, I went to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And when I went there, I specifically chose to go to a college ministry that was not just Asian, but it was more diverse. And it was really there that I feel like I encountered God for the first time and where I would go to Sunday service and we would spend four hours just worshiping. And I just felt the movement of the Holy Spirit there. And I knew that there was something real. And I became, I was discipled by my pastor, by other women. And I did Henry Blackaby's Experience in God book, which like completely changed my life. I can like age you. I can tell you exactly what year that was. Okay. I remember... You can, you can, well, you it spans kind of decades, like, doesn't it? It's kind of a classic, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, but there, there was a moment where, like, everybody, you weren't, you didn't love Jesus if you hadn't done experiencing God. Yes, I <laughs> so know. There was a moment. There was yes. a moment when I remember that. Yeah, and and so it was really that book and the discipleship that that college ministry offered me, and really this entering into these places and times, especially on Sundays, where you could just feel the movement of the Holy Spirit and worship God freely, which in my Korean Presbyterian church, no one raised their hand. No one felt like they were really worshiping God. It just seemed like a lot of hand motions or or just um, almost inauthentic, if I could say that. And so, so it really was in college that I experienced who God really was in my life. And I, I became sold out for Christ since that time. But I also think that um, right right after college, I started working in local politics, doing political consulting for a while, and then I transitioned into a job at Royal Relief. And I remember just that whole journey of being outside of a Korean Presbyterian church, of coming alive in Christ, and then knowing, well, what does my faith mean for the brokenness that I see around me in the world? Um, and I, I and that faith journey really took me from from the Korean Presbyterian tradition that I was used to, to really saying, actually, my faith is is about salvation and is about being reconciled to Christ, but it's about so much more. It's about being an answer and 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 knowing that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And so for the brokenness and the suffering and the poverty that we see around the world, our faith has an answer for those things. But I never connected that to what I was brought up in in the Korean Presbyterian Church. And now I think a lot has changed. I think when you see second generation kids like myself growing up and attending more multi-ethnic ministries or themselves going back to the Korean Presbyterian Church and having English speaking services, but then also being really involved in their local communities doing you know, d- different ministries and acts of justice, I think there is this broader perspective of what, what our faith can actually mean, that it's not just about individual salvation it's actually about the renewal of the world and how do we apply that faith in a real and tangible way to the things that we see around us and i think being korean american having that dual identity really gives us an edge to be able to relate to the majority culture and the minority culture and i think when you see so much of what christ teachings is about which is us being an answer to people's prayers and about us interacting with the marginalized and oppressed in our communities then for us to have experienced that immigrant heritage and to have been in families where parents suffered a lot and sacrificed a lot, it helps us relate to a lot of different communities um, so that we can actually do the things that God is calling us to do. So I, I cherish my immigrant heritage, my identity as a Korean American woman, and it's something I'm trying to really instill in my kids as well. And forgive me, I'm an outsider to, um, obviously, the Korean-American church. So this is not an invitation to kind of take shots. But as an African-American, we have, you know, sometimes the kind of Korean-American, Asian-American story is seen as kind of the success, the successful minority. And there is a there's a there's a, a, a tradition or maybe a stereotype or perception that the Korean American church has historically been detached from politics in a way that, in a way that is distinctive from kind of the African American active engagement. And you even mentioned how many Korean American or Asian American people have been elected to leadership in evangelical organizations. 
and how much rarer it is to find, or it can sometimes feel more rare to find African-American leaders in kind of those same evangelical spaces. So do you think that it's a fair thing to say, or is it an accurate perception to say that historically the Korean-American church has been kind of somewhat more distanced from political engagement? I definitely think so. And uh, that's one thing that I feel like is challenging when I speak to a lot of Korean or Asian-American audiences, which is actually not that frequent. I think most places I go to are predominantly white, I would say. But when I go back even to my home church that I grew up in or or other Korean-American communities, I challenge them all the time to think about how their faith applies outside of the church to political issues and all of these things where I feel like their voice can make such a huge difference. And I think the reason why Korean American and I would say even other Asian American churches are apolitical is because they don't want to rock the waters. There's a sense that they've already done enough to try to make it in this country, to be accepted, uh, to not cause too much trouble, to be loved and contribute to their communities that that I think there's a sense that if they become political, it's going to become divisive and it's going to be something that they can't really speak into that much because of the fact that they just want to provide for their families and just that's it. And so I feel like for a lot of the younger generation, um, my fear is that we're going to get caught up in this quote unquote American dream and get so comfortable that we're not going to engage with the things that I feel like God is calling us to as a whole church. And for a lot of Asian Americans, there is this opportunity to relate to different communities and to bring our assets and our intellect and our experiences to really shape the narrative around some of these really tough issues like immigration or like um, global poverty and all of these different issues that I think God calls us to care about. But sometimes I think becoming too comfortable in what we have or just trying just to focus just on our families um, and providing for them, sometimes I think it could become a little warping. And so I think Asian oh. and so I would say even in the African-American church that, you know, the, the political activism comes out of this this suffering. Right. It's it's this marginalization, this. Um, and not just in the larger society, but even within the the evangelical church. It's even for a lot of African-Americans to identify as evangelical is somewhat of a challenge because of the history of what that term has meant for African-American communities. And I think for the Korean-American community, there has been the immigrant struggle, but the systematic disenfranchisement of a lot of Korean-Americans um, hasn't necessarily been there. And so I think that... Um, a lot of Korean Americans just want to coast by, even though I think they have a lot of political power to do a lot more. When I was in college, one of the interesting things that would happen is that when we when we get um, African students from Uganda, Rwanda, um, or Ghana, and we would immediately expect them to like join the revolution. So we'd be like, "Okay, welcome, Ghana. Here is 250 years of American history and oppression, and join the fight." And they was like, well, no, no, I just got here and I'm trying to have the immigrant experience. And so we began to realize, and, and, and oftentimes that led to a disconnect between African-Americans who've been here, obviously, for generations, and African immigrants, because African immigrants were trying to live the immigrant experience. And it seems to be saying a similar thing happened with Asian-Americans. Rather than coming in and being immediately politically active, they came in and tried to experience the American dream. But now two or three generations, I mean, people, the Asian-Americans have been here for a long but for a long time. But as the generations go by, do you think people get more comfortable with their sense of identity? And is that what happened to you? Like you said that you knew this thing. I know you went to this church, but what, what motivated you to get involved with immigration in particular? Yeah. So I think, uh, I, well, my parents always, I grew up in a really unique home and that a lot of Asian parents are very strict and have very high expectations of you. But my parents were, somewhat strict in that they had certain values that they instilled in our family, but they weren't pigeonholing me into wanting to do uh, like certain careers, for example. And so, you know, that's something I struggle with because even the work that I do at World Belief is a little bit atypical for for what maybe a lot of Asian Americans can do or traditionally have done. And so I, a lot of my experience, formative experience was when I studied abroad in my junior year in college where I went to Spain in Madrid. And I remember I was riding a subway and there was this young mother and her child who was from Africa that was riding the subway. And a group of these young Spanish teenagers 
got on and they started graffitiing on the wall, get out of my country, black people in Spanish. And then I um, was about to say something to them and then they got off the train. And so I, I went up to this mother and I just asked if she was okay in Spanish and she didn't want to talk to me, but you could tell that she was visibly upset about it. Um, and so I realized like, man, this there's so many blatant instances of racism in Spain and they're dealing with migration issues. And so that summer, I actually volunteered at this organization called SOS Racismo, which basically is this anti-racist organization trying to combat racism all throughout Spain and in Europe. There's, they have different chapters throughout Europe. And then I also volunteered at the UN studying asylum laws because I realized for this woman, for her to feel a true sense of security, that she needed to feel welcomed by the Spaniards that were there and basically feel like there was a sense of community where she was accepted. But if she has that acceptance, but legally and by law, she is in fear of being deported back to where she came from, um, then that's not secure for her either. Um, And on the flip side, if she had legal rights to be able to live in Spain, but then the society around her was taunting her and hurling racial epithets at her, then she would also not feel welcome. So both the community societal welcome is important as well as legal protection, systemic protection for her as well. So I think that summer where I did research on laws, but also to try to do a lot of anti-racist activism, uh, really formed my perspective of what it meant for these really vulnerable individuals to be able to um, feel less vulnerable and secure in the places that they're fleeing to. So when I came back to the States, um, I got involved in political um, advocacy and consulting, and I did that for a while, fundraising in, in, in Maryland politics. Um, but I always wanted to go back to refugee issues. And so I think just being that summer in Spain and realizing how much they were grappling with this social issue uh, made me want to work with refugees. And so I remember at, at, in Baltimore, I wanted to leave Baltimore. I wanted to go to New York and D.C., um, my friend worked at World Relief and she said, you totally need to apply for a job at World Relief. So I applied for a job there. I didn't get the job, but uh, a woman who was working there was promoted internally to the job I applied for. So HR calls me and they're like, oh, well, this job that you applied for is not available. But she left the woman who was promoted. She left open her position, which is in the refugee program. And I was like, I didn't know World Relief worked with refugees. And so I was so excited about that opportunity. And when I started working World of Belief is when I my eyes were open to starting to understand what the U.S. involvement in refugees was, which is I had no idea that the U.S. resettled refugees. I had no idea that uh, we were the world's leader in refugee resettlement. And so this whole new world was open to me. And it was really in this work that I felt um, a passion and a conviction. And um, and I think a lot of it is probably tied to my my family's story, which I never made that connection in the beginning. But if I were to think of someone who's the most vulnerable in this world, one of the categories, it would be refugees. It's people who, because of no choice that they've had, had to leave everything behind and go to another place. And most of the times that they do that, they're not welcome there. They're not, um, you know, they have to survive on very little a lot of times. And there's entire generations of young refugees that are traumatized by the experience, just like my father was traumatized by being orphaned and having his father killed because he was part of the media. And so I've always been drawn to this. And I think the other thing that really developed for me working at Royal Relief is this sense that I worked at this Christian evangelical organization, and yet evangelicals were almost always the ones who are the most anti-immigrant or the most anti-refugee. Yeah, I, wanted, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you about yeah. that because in our current context, interestingly enough, immigration has become politicized yeah and it's seen as in some places a progressive issue so if you had to say there's three or four misconceptions that most christians have about refugees and immigration what would you say those are well i think the first most common misconception that i really try to battle with people is for them to pull it out of the political realm and pull it into a theological realm because Yes, immigration is political and a lot of our, our elected officials debate immigration all the time. But if you actually look at scripture and you look at how many times immigrant or immigration or just gear, the foreigner is mentioned in the Old Testament, this idea of hospitality is mentioned in the New Testament, it is all over the Bible. In fact, almost every single major biblical character was an immigrant. And that immigrant experience helped open the door for them to experience the faithfulness of God. So 
whether it's Abraham who was called to leave his homeland and go to another land that God would show him. It was God's faithfulness to him in leaving everything he knew that was familiar behind and going someplace that proved God's faithfulness to him in his life, right? And you see in the story of Ruth, she was literally a migrant worker working the fields when Boaz noticed her. And it was because of her work ethic as an immigrant, as a migrant worker that caught the attention of Boaz. Or even Joseph, who was a victim of human trafficking, he was sold into slavery. Uh, the, the greatest refugee in scripture is Jesus himself, who was, um, there was an edict out by King Herod when he was a little baby in which he was supposed to be killed off. And so what did Mary and Joseph do? They took him, their, their son, and they literally uh, fled into Egypt in order to save his life. So they became refugees. Yeah, I, want, I wanted to say something about that for people who are going to complain. Okay. <laughs> let, 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 let me jump in and, and, and add some Bible context to what you're saying. I've heard people, I'm just going, I'm going to do a couple of, this is free. They might edit this out of the podcast. Don't okay. edit this, Richard. So the, first <laughs> of all, when, when she talks about the Old Testament, in particular, I think it's important to talk about what happens in Deuteronomy, where God consistently says to Israel, Remember what it was like when you were foreigners in Egypt and have compassion upon the people there because you yourselves once were enslaved. And so what he is saying then is that, is that Israel's own experience of displacement was supposed to create in them a, a sensibility towards the foreigner. And so it is not – people say, well, we don't live under you know the Old Testament theocracy, so these laws don't apply. Well, that's not the issue. The issue is the disposition that God was trying to inculcate through allowing the people to experience. So the question isn't whether or not there's – you know this Old Testament law needs to kind of be encoded in this part of American policy. It's saying what should be the Christian's instinct towards the refugee. And I think that reading the Old and the New Testament would say that our initial – attitude should be kingdom oriented towards compassion rather than immediately argue law and order yeah well i think it's (laughs) yeah it's important to recognize that yes the the commandments that god gave to the nation of israel it doesn't directly correlate to commandments that he would necessarily give us but what it does teach us is about the heart of god right and about the character of god and the and the values right and so A lot of times when we talk about engagement politically, we're having a values-based conversation. It's what are the biblical principles we know that God espouses in Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of times it's it's this idea of, of the sanctity of human life. It's care for the most vulnerable among us. And these are indisputable when you actually look at Scripture. And so that's why I emphasize the fact that, yes, we can talk about the politics of this issue, but also let's actually go back to Scripture and really understand what the heart of God is when he commands the nation of Israel through multiple uh, 92 verses in the Old Testament alone of of care, sh- showing care and concern for those who are widowed, orphaned, the poor, and the immigrants um, that are living among us. And this idea of of philozenia, or literally a love of the stranger. So philo is love, xenia, stranger. In Matthew 25, when it says, I was a stranger and you invited me in, the opposite of this biblical command to welcome the stranger is xenophobia. It's a fear of the stranger. And so much of our conversation today is around a fear of, of the foreigner or a fear of the other. And so I think um, going back to scripture um, and understanding the theology around migration is significantly important, not just for what the Bible teaches, but also for the impact that m- migration is having on missiology. The fact that many people who have never heard of Christ are now moving to other countries and meeting Christians and going into church for the first time means that this is an incredible missional opportunity for the church, if we have the eyes to see it as such. You said part of this is theological. What are the other kinds of misconceptions you think people have? Somehow people are coming in and they're trying to... One of the most prominent misconceptions we've heard is that a lot of the refugees who are Muslim are coming in are going to be establishing Sharia law, or we shouldn't be... There's this subtle anti-Muslim bias from a lot of not just churches that we've worked with, but even prominent Christian leaders. And so, and it's, if we do have a missiological mindset that I think it, it begs the question, well, what are we doing to reach the nations for Christ without even having to leave our own backyards? And so I think some people will take these concepts of compassion and justice and welcome and say, well, that is the role of the church. And I think that's the attitude we should have, but the role of the government is different. The government needs to exclude these people. They need to make sure that we're secure. 
And so I think this conversation about not just having it be a theological ministry opportunity, but also looking at it from a political lens is really important as well, because the need for Christian voice in this conversation is is really important because a lot of our elected officials are afraid politically of what it's going to cost them to support some kind of immigration reform. And so I think that's the other misconception I want to bring up is that so many people think about being compassionate towards refugees or immigrants as some liberal agenda when probably the greatest president who who supported immigrants and provided legalization for even undocumented immigrants who were here was President Ronald Reagan who was was endeared to many uh, evangelicals and was a conservative leader for times and he was the president that not only legalized millions of undocumented immigrants but he also is the one who oversaw the the resettlement of hundreds of thousands of refugees during his administration and so this idea that accepting refugees and those fleeing religious or political persecution into our country is somehow liberal agenda has never been the case it's always been this almost nonpartisan issue because it's so tied to the founding of our country, which is you accept people who are fleeing persecution because that's exactly what happened to our ancestors. And we can't lose that ethos as a country. And so I think for Christians, yes, we have to theologically and missiologically understand what migration is on a spiritual level. But I think politically, we have to engage in this conversation to understand that when we talk about infusing this conversation with compassion and justice and truth, that that doesn't make you a liberal. It's in fact very much owned by both Republican and Democratic parties, and that's something that we need to continue to think about. That's my favorite color, but it's subject to change. Hey everybody, Richard here, producer of the Disruptors. InterVarsity Press wanted me to let you know that you can go to ivpress.com/disruptors with an e to learn more about IVP books and get 30% off all titles with free shipping. And now, let's go back to the conversation. Other than just saying it's not true, can you speak to a little bit about like immigration and violence and those kinds of links? Because you see, like every now and then, a story pops up on the news, and it feels like it feels like in the African American context, whenever a black person does something, you feel like it's it's representing the culture. And so, like when a famous black, it's like, oh man, when when one of us do something, we're not individuals; we're 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 a collective. And so, I'm wondering. It feels like the same as it relates to if an immigrant does something, it's not that immigrant, it's immigrants who do it. And so can you speak to any any like statistics or information about like immigration and violence in the United States? Well, if you look at I always try to cite government statistics because they're indisputable and it's nonpartisan. So if you actually look at data from the FBI, you will see that immigrants commit less crime than native born Americans. And it makes sense because if you're here as an immigrant and you are basically proving your ability to be law-abiding people who can legally stay here, then you're not going to commit crimes, right? And so FBI statistically says that immigrants are less likely, and they they have committed less crime than native-born Americans. So I think that is statistically true. Um, Obviously, when you have individual cases of immigrants that have committed crime, it's easy to focus on that and 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 basically infer those values of criminality to the larger population. And that's called stereotyping, right? And so it's not just immigrants. It's like you're saying African-Americans, Asian-Americans, others are are experiencing that to, to large degrees. And so it's always unhelpful when you use one story to paint a broad picture of an entire community. And I think when it comes to immigrants, that that has oftentimes happens. Um, and it's unhelpful because when you actually look at the data nationally, it is actually not true. And so uh, this idea that immigrants are taking away or are a threat to our communities is pretty pronounced in white evangelical com- in white evangelical communities in particular. When you actually look at polling that Pew Research has done or other data sets have done, white evangelicals more than Black Protestants, more than Hispanic Catholics, and more than non-religious people are almost always the ones that are that are pulled to be the most anti-immigrant. In fact, there is a recent um, data that showed that 
white evangelicals think that demographic change is a threat to our country. Um, and so what's encouraging about that study, even though that specific line is not so encouraging, is that younger evangelicals don't think that's true. So a lot of younger evangelicals that are in communities that are more diverse wouldn't actually be likely to say that. But the fact that older white evangelicals think that the changing demographics of our country is a large concern to them means that a lot of people are pushing back against immigration because they don't like the racial shift, right, that is happening in our country, the demographic shift. So I think that is something that we have to recognize is as followers of Jesus, what is our the the teachings of scripture have to say about how comfortable we should be around people that are different than us. You spoke about like how of all of the people, um white evangelical older white evangelicals are most resistant to issues of immigration. But that's a significant portion of your audience working for World Vision, I would assume. So I want to ask you, is this exhausting? And what keeps you going? Why not quit? Why not just go and convince all the younger evangelicals this is a good idea? What is it that exhausts you about that? And what keeps you going? It can be exhausting because I think for a lot of the constituency of role relief, it is mostly uh White, white evangelicals. But I think one of the things I've been constantly saying to media and other places is that white evangelicals don't make up all of the evangelical community in the United States. In fact, there are large African-American, Asian-American, Latino, and, and Native American populations that make up a vibrant part of the church, and yet they don't oftentimes get interviewed as as being leaders of the evangelical church. And so I mean, I definitely think that um, this issue of diversity within the church itself is is ongoing because I don't think the larger society necessarily recognizes how diverse the evangelical church actually is. Um, and so I do think that for the church to grapple with issues of race and immigration and all these really tough topics um, is going to require a lot of courage to have these conversations in the church and even for pastors to lead these conversations because a lot of the we've done a survey where we found that most people are more informed by the media than they are by their local church when it comes to immigration, which means that when you have someone watching a certain news channel five days a week, then they're going to be more influenced by that, you know, talking head than they are going to be by their local pastor. And so what we've tried to do at World Belief is to say, well, let's bring this into the church and have a theological conversation about this really tough issue, but then also tie that to, well, what can we church, what can we as a church do to respond? So whether it's in teaching English or having ministries that serve immigrants or refugees or, or other um, tangible opportunities to actually get to know people in our neighborhood that may look different than us, really, I think what's going to change within our perception of this immigration being a threat is, is tangible relationships. Was that, was that, was that what motivated you to write the book, Welcoming the Stranger? Did you want to get this information out to churches and to uh, the wider society? Because I know you travel around and doing, but you have also written this down. So what were you trying to get accomplished when you wrote the book? Yeah, well, I think uh, for because working on an organization where so much of our constituency is the evangelical church, we realized there was a disconnect between people seeing this as a political issue and people seeing this as a spiritual or church issue. Um, and then also just how much misinformation there is about the history of immigration and even current facts around immigration. So these are all things that we wanted to address. So Welcoming a Stranger actually tackles various facets of the debate. So it'll talk about the history, the politics, and all of those different topics. So I think for for the book, and even for us as writers, me and Matthew Sorens um, wrote it together, it really was to change the conversation within the church around this topic, and really to equip the church to respond in a way that wasn't just um, on social media feeds, but actually has led to churches opening up immigration legal clinics and church pastors actually weighing in with their elected officials and signing on to letters that we've circulated and signing on to ads that we've done. And so I think we've given a lot of more courage to a lot of churches to be able to tackle this issue in a way that's not divisive, but actually brings people together. What would you say would be victory so you can say i can retire <laughs> because okay. this has happened in the church as it relates to immigration what would that look like if you could say i am czar of immigration and christianity we're all going to do this in north america what would it be 
Yeah, well, I, that's a funny question because that means I can never retire because this yes. <laughs> issue since the founding of our country has always divided people. And I think if the church doesn't get this right, I don't know if the larger society can get it right because we have the book of truth to help guide our response. We have scriptures to help us form a biblical worldview on an issue like immigration. And the question is whether as Christians we have the wherewithal and the resources to be able to dive deep into scriptures to inform our response. And I think that's that's the big question that we, we have as a challenge today. And so I think the main thing that I want a lot of Christians to understand about immigration is that that our response to this is- issue of immigration will will display to a broken world how we uh, believe the gospel itself or what we believe about the, about the gospel itself. Are we going to be a people who continues to to marginalize and disengage from those who are different than us? Or are we actually going to use the opportunity for people who are extremely vulnerable, who have fled pretty horrific situations in many cases, and are coming to this country looking for opportunity to enter into these relation with into relationships with these individuals? And I think as a church, we have an incredible opportunity if we ha- have the eyes to see it as such. Um, and so I think if my main goal and my hope for the church is that not only will we see this as an incredible opportunity to build relationships with people that are different than us, but also use this as an opportunity to to do advocacy and to be a voice to change the conversation around immigration in our country because it's been pretty toxic. Jenny, this is Richard. Sometimes I weigh in and ask a question. He gets one question per podcast, okay. so it's always Make the best it good. one. No. I'm going to unmute him, so okay. go ahead. You can speak now. One of the things that strikes me about World Relief is is you guys have, as an organization have been in the middle of kind of a storm of controversy and. And in addition to that, honestly, like it feels like ex- you're experiencing a very public trial in t- with some very concrete consequences. You've had to lay off a number of people. You've had a lot of really dark things happening just for your organization. And and uh, and and also like what that means is is really dark in terms of the things we're talking about here. Right. Like um, what America how America is responding to the refugee crisis to immigration in general. And I think my question is sort of existential in nature, which is how are you dealing as someone who's been doing this for a while? How are you doing dealing with um, both personally and as an organization? But I'm, I'm more interested on the personal level because this is a show really about in people, individual disruptors. How are you dealing with this um, concrete reality that feels like failure at times? Like, how do you think through that and deal with that? Yeah. Well, I will say very honestly that I think it's been really disappointing to see where the church has been on this and how overly politicized it's been when, for example, we, in 2017, we issued, we published a full page out in the Washington Post where really prominent church leaders signed on, basically saying that we continue to support refugees and immigrants despite this travel ban that was taking place. And we got emails from pastors saying, oh, you're over-politicizing this issue. You need to support the president. Or they would say, why are you making such a big deal about this when it's not a big deal in the first place? Or we got an email from one pastor who said, oh, cry me a river. Um, and these are, these are, or, and we've also gotten emails from people that have said, well, I'm partnering with you to help people over there not to bring them over here. And so emails like that are eye opening because these are churches that have never questioned before what we're doing on refugees. In fact, they supported it and they said that this is great what you're doing, but all of a sudden when we're starting to speak out to say there shouldn't be a travel ban just because you're from a specific nationality, um, that that became a political issue for a lot of folks. And so I think to see how political identity has overtaken your Christian identity and changing people's values about some of these really basic, fundamental um, Christian values, I would say, I think has been really disappointing. Um, and I would say it was surprising for me. I, I maybe shouldn't have been surprised because I think for a lot of my friends, and colleagues that have done a lot of anti-racism work or activism around race issues weren't necessarily surprised. But I think the the constant 
um, barrage of policy changes that are making life really challenging for a lot of immigrants and refugees who are really vulnerable um, has been exhausting. I mean, every week I'm writing a different press release saying, should we respond to this or not? Because uh, just as an example, there's a recent change in the public charge where immigrants that are potentially going to use public benefits will be denied immigration benefits. If you look at the refugee settlement pro- program, we're re- receiving the lowest number of refugees we've ever had in 40 years since the start of the refugee settlement program. We're based effectively shutting the border to asylum seekers that are fleeing persecution and not able to find protection in the U.S. And I can go on and on. And so it is exhausting. And I think it is wearing on me. Um, emotionally, physically. Um, But I do think that I'm hopeful despite all of this because my sense is that this is perhaps a season um, that's giving us as a church um, time to really reflect on what we really believe about the role of the church in, in, in not just ministry, but political engagement. And just as a story, a few weeks ago, I was in at John Brown University, which is in Siloam Springs, Arkansas, and the students there I met are super active on this issue. So a few years ago, there was the governor of Arkansas came to visit and speak at chapel. And students were holding up signs basically saying that they wanted Arkansas to be a welcoming state for refugees. And they forced themselves to meet with the governor for, for a few minutes after chapel. They even delivered him a pie as a sign of hospitality and a demonstration of that to him. And these students are, they knew more about, or they knew a lot of what was happening in D.C. with regards to refugee legislation. And all of that are hopeful signs to me that even for young evangelicals in this country, that they are taking their faith to to preference or to um, to prefer and be a voice for the some of the most vulnerable people in our community. And so I think a lot of that gives me hope, even though I know there's a lot of more work to do. Um, but I, I do feel like in conversations I've had with these students and even with a lot of pastors that are fed up and that are continuing to educate their churches gives me a lot of hope. So, um, but, you know, I think we need to be doing a lot more. And I think that conversation needs to be something that's grappled with across the church in general. One of the things that's been surprising for me about the last few years is that I, I used to think that the issues were theological and biblical. And that if we made a good enough argument that people would listen and, and, and there has been a noticeable shift where it, and it isn't simply a matter of theological disagreement. It's, it's the vehemence of even raising the issue that seems to be, that was like most shocking. And so when you talk about how people say, Oh, cry me a river, or, you know, we want this there. It's like the, the casual dismissal or the outright hostility has led me to believe that it is both spiritual. This is like actual spiritual warfare. Forgive me. Now, now I'm like the the quasi charismatic Pentecostal elements of my spirituality is coming up. <laughs> but this it's, it's a spiritual issue. But it's also it's more it it is. I've been shocked by the re the redefinition of orthodoxy along political lines. So that it's not that you believe these things about the Bible and Scripture, that you use the Bible and the Scripture to respect it as authoritative in a certain way, and that's the definition of orthodoxy. What I've noticed is that they don't even, the issue isn't simply the means by which you argue, it is the conclusions. And there are certain political conclusions that are effectively heretical, that get you shouted out of the mainstream. And I've seen a lot of people, and, and actually people who are on this podcast, it's, 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 they found themselves going against the grain for trying to be biblical because I'm assuming it would be much easier to just like go into a community where these ideas find a much a much greater home so why do you why do you stay why do you stay and make the case possibly (laughs) in the most hostile audience where it would be it would be easier to go somewhere else where people would just love yeah all the stuff that you say about immigration well I would say that I think because our whole witness is our whole witness as a church is is inflected on the positions and the narrative of the church when it comes to these really hot social issues because for so long we've thought that we're trying to win a society under threat and i think a lot of older evangelicals think that way on key social issues that have been come standard bearers in the church around you know even abortion or gay marriage 
But for a lot of younger evangelicals and for the watching world, I think people are asking the question, well, what else do you care about? What does your gospel speak to when it comes to these social issues? And if we can, as a church, have an answer to those questions to say that actually our faith compels us to speak into all of these issues in a way that reflects the values that we hold as scripture teaches it, then I think we're we're basically presenting a, a, a distorted view of the gospel to a world that doesn't even know who Christ is. And so I think people start to then perceive Christianity as a faith that in which it's all about self-preservation and it's all about what's in it for us rather than a faith that actually is about caring for the most vulnerable among us. And I think when we start to have this inconsistent public witness about our faith, then we do significant damage to the gospel. There's countless conversations I've had with people who are non-believers or people who are completely disenfranchised or are dischanted by the church that ask these questions all the time. And a lot of times they think Christians are hypocritical or they're not consistent in how we speak about things. But if the watching world, especially for those who do not know Christ, can start to understand actually our values speak to a lot of these issues. And if we speak about these issues in a way that opens the door to conversation and not vilification, then I think there's real opportunities to build relationships and to bring people into the church. And so my concern and my desire to want to reach white evangelicals on this issue in particular is because I think a lot of people um, want to learn from and, and, uh, and, and let me rephrase that. I think the reason why I feel particularly compelled to reach white evangelicals on this is because I think our witness depends on it. I think the way that we respond to issues of immigration reflect what we believe about the gospel itself. And if we can demonstrate to a world that is looking for answers, that these are the ways that we position ourselves on this, then I think we can do a lot to bring people to know the Christ that we know in scriptures. Yeah, I think that I think that one of the things that drives me is that I, I've noticed it for a lot of younger people. And I'm going to, for a lot of younger people, it's like any answer will do. And so if they don't hear these issues discussed from a biblical theological perspective, they will adopt whatever perspective allows them to kind of talk about these things. And so interestingly enough, it's sometimes their kind of their intuition formed by the arising for the Christian faith that God wants us to care about the marginalized that leads them out of the church because the church that gave them this heart of compassion then didn't want to encourage it amongst this for a particular group of people. And so what I say to people, and I think you articulated this in your own way, that part of what you're doing is ultimately evangelistic, that you want to make sure that Christians who love Jesus and who care about the immigrant can find a place to do that within historic Christian orthodoxy, which makes you inherently disruptive because you're bringing these values that you get from the Bible and you're saying, almost like um, Dr. King, we're here to have you live what you put on paper. And so if we say we have these texts that are our authoritative guide for Christian life and practice, then these ought to inform our practice. So if you have a pastor who says, you know, I've listened to this, Jenny, and I am convicted and I'm passionate about it. What are like one or two things you would have them do um, yes. to begin to get informed about this debate? One thing I would say is uh, go to evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. It is a coalition of various organizations, including World Belief, where you'll find resources on preaching about immigration from the pulpit, where, where you'll find different videos and ebooks about talking about and thinking through immigration. And there's also an open letter called the Evangelical... Uh, based restitution statement where we're basically arguing for restitution for the millions of undocumented immigrants in our country today. And it's an open sign-on letter. And so if folks want to sign on to that letter, we'd be extremely grateful because we're using that in a lot of meetings we're having with our elected officials. The second thing I would say is if you haven't preached about immigration from the pulpit, preach an immigrate, uh, immigration sermon and see how your church responds. There's been a lot of pastors we've worked with that have done that, that tie their their sermon to ministry that they're actually doing within the church. 
And I think being able to take it from that context to a theological context and informing your church about how to think through this would be extremely helpful. And I've talked to many people that have felt like scales have literally fallen from their eyes because they've never thought about immigration as a theological or church issue. They've only thought about it as a political issue. And in the environment we're in right now, which can be completely toxic to immigrants, immigration is probably the number one political topic of conversation for churchgoers to hear about it from in a safe setting like the church and even from their pastor, I think can make um, a lot of inroads into helping equip people to know how to respond well. I'm, I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus told about you know, don't begin to build unless you have enough to complete it and don't go to war unless you have enough soldiers to win. And I know that a lot of pastors are thinking, wow, if I say anything about immigration in my church, I'm going to empty the pews. And what I want to say is, (laughs) there's a lot of things I want to say, but I'm going to try to be as charitable. I want to be heard. So I want to say it this way. Um, what we're trying to do on this podcast is not trail you what is the most effective means by which you can grow your churches. What we're attempting to do is to is to paint a picture of what Christ calls his church to. So what I would encourage people to do is not to make the moral calculus of, you know, how many people will I leave? What is the long-term cost of my silence? Because the people who pay the cost for that silence are the marginalized in the communities. And any issue in the church where you want people to grow on, people have to hear sermons about it. So if you want people to learn how to tithe, they don't just intuit tithing. You got to explain it. what does it mean to tithe. If you're dealing with sexual immorality in your congregation, you can't expect people just to understand how to be faithful in marriage. You have marriage retreats. If you want to talk about parenting, there's parenting. And so what I want to articulate is that thinking theologically through the political issues of the day have spiritual consequences. If we don't do it, then people will be disciples somewhere else. And there's a difference between being standing up and delivering a partisan sermon versus giving people the theological resources to think through issues like immigration. And I think it is vitally important in our generation to have pastors and Christian leaders who can actually pastor churches through this continuous time, because if it's not the church that's going to help us think it through, then we're just going to be a Christian manifestation of CS, what's it, NBC and Fox News, instead instead of actually thinking about something distinctively Christian. So she has laid down the gauntlet, you know, yes. <laughs> for sermons in 2020. <laughs> Inform yourself, read the book, preach about it, maybe save a couple of checks up first, <laughs> get your money right, <laughs> um, and then... <laughs> Because you might get run out. So get your money right and then go ahead and preach on it. <laughs> well, actually, I like to talk about revolutionaries with a plan. So don't... Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, the many pastors we've worked with that have preached it haven't been run out of the pulpit. We go. And in fact, um, and yes, they've gotten a lot of emails afterwards. But the people that have been informed and mobilized um, have outweighed a lot of the negativity. So... It can be done. <laughs> Jenny says there have been zero firing as a result of, of, of reading her book and talking about it. <laughs> so, so if you get fired, like email us on the show and we can say we'll, 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 we'll put up like a chart. Fired, got emails, everything was fine. And we'll, we'll update you in season two how that went. Yes, so that Jenny, would be awesome. I would love that, actually. <laughs> that would be an encouragement so, to me. I think that most people who aren't within an Asian American context, it's, it's a mystery of what happens in Asian American communities, especially the Asian American Christian community. I thought it was really interesting to see her reflect on her own narrative and what's it like to grow from that into kind of wider evangelicalism and then come to a place of peace. The fact that there was a lot of resistance, the fact that um, she gets discouraged, the fact that World Vision has paid a tremendous price for some of the things they've done. I don't want to say that people are going to have some of their fears confirmed, but sometimes you just got to like let the truth fall where it may. What the Disruptors podcast is attempting to do is to chronicle the lives of people who are trying not to pull apart what society says we have to pull apart. So society is saying, if you care about immigration, then you're some kind of like socialist liberal, communist, whatever ism you think that is bad, you just attach that to the issue. 
what Jenny has refused to do is to pull those things apart. The surprising thing is this. International ministry has always been like a politically safe space for evangelicalism. It's really easy when the Bible says care for widows, orphans, and foreigners to just care for the foreigner. It's like it was seen as a one-to-one -one correspondence. World vision didn't change, but the culture changed around world vision. And so there's, there's a sense in which just doing what you've always done in a society that now imposes what you've always done is self-disruptive. It, it was their refusal to kind of bend with the winds of the culture that made them disruptive. Because had, you know, the political winds not changed, they could have just served refugees forever. I mean, I remember, I don't know, this is 10 years ago, there were all of these stories about Muslims coming to Christ through dreams and visions. Do you remember this? They're like, oh, they, uh, you know, these Muslims would hear the story of, you should go to this city. And then they go to the city and then the missionary would be there and tell them about Jesus. And so there was this lauding of the movement of Muslims to Jesus abroad. But then when we started talking about Muslims coming here, it all shifted. We've contorted ourselves biblically and theologically to kind of fit within a certain system. And I don't think Real Vision came and said, let's just have an open, unprincipled border. Like that wasn't like, it wasn't like they were like being revolutionaries. It seems to me that they were just trying to say, hey, Christians, we've always cared about these basic principles. Now it seems like these same basic principles are now politically and therefore theologically problematic. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. We will be grateful if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Esau McCauley, and you can check out the best and most disruptive offerings from InterVarsity Press authors at ivpress.com. We out. <laughs>